Hello and welcome to the Image Method Podcast. This is a show about making moving images. I'm TW and on this episode we'll be doing a transcription analysis of the horse versus truck scene from The Horse Whisperer. One of my favorites, it's a very rich example of masterful filmmaking. Image Method is an enhanced podcast, which means the images we talk about appear in the video window of iTunes. And those images can also be scaled, by the way, if you can want to make them larger, you can. Just grab the lower right corner and um, large them up to about 800 pixels. I think it looks nice there. Images used to be album artwork in iTunes, but iTunes has since changed and they now appear as video. I'm not able to really make it work very well on my iPod, unfortunately, but um, hopefully that'll be, that will be uh, fixed soon. Um, there are also chapter markers, so uh, you can navigate around in the show uh, in iTunes. You can also use iTunes to export an MP3 of the podcast if you just want the audio and you want to load that audio onto another audio player that uh, Apple doesn't make, as one loyal listener wrote to me about. You can also play the downloaded M4V file as a QuickTime. QuickTime Player is a downloadable free application as is iTunes. The easiest way to get the show is to subscribe to the automatically delivered podcast via iTunes. I think it's the most stable way to play the show is with QuickTime, but the most easiest way to get the show is to subscribe via the iTunes store. It's free and it just means you get the podcast automatically delivered to you. All the images and other materials that are part of this podcast can also be found at the Image Method blog, which is at imagemethod.blogspot.com. Again, that web address is imagemethod.blogspot.com. There's a lot of useful stuff there, including all the show notes, archives from previous episodes, useful links, other articles, a way to sign up for email alerts for new episodes, and even links to the music you hear on the show. So uh, check out imagemethod.blogspot.com, and don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes while you're there. Anyway... Transcription analysis is the process of looking closely at a scene and writing down what you see. We used to do this when I was in music school and we'd play these jazz solos we admired over and over again in order to write down in musical notation the notes as they were actually being played. This sort of closer inspection kind of reveals the subtleties of a work. It's very important, I think, to do the writing down part of the process and not just be content to look closely. The reason for this is that when you've got a written version of the work, a new form of the work as compared to how the work appeared to you originally, you can look at the piece from a different vantage point and it can reveal things to you that you don't really get as an audience member. This is analogous to a doctor using an x-ray this mode of looking more closely and examining something by putting it into another form is certainly nothing complex or difficult to understand. But doing this for movies you like doesn't cost very much and it is certainly easier than taking an x-ray or transcribing music. The scene we're going to be talking about today is about 2 minutes and 15 seconds long and it contains about 100 shots 
um, in the edit. What I did was to put the scene into video editing software and then I measured the durations of the shots and wrote them down as well. These notations are indicated on the images from the scene as the shot number on the left with a duration in seconds and frames on the right um, for the for the uh, amount of time the shot was uh, on the screen. This example is shot number 12 and the duration on the screen is 3 seconds and 17 frames. By the way, the durations of the shots are in a 30 frames per second time base um, for this example. Um, what I did next was to look at the scene slowly in order to construct a written shot list and I also drew an overhead diagram of the, of the scene that indicates roughly where the camera angles are placed in relation to the sets and the actors. So what is contained in the materials for this podcast is the real-time video of the scene, some still images that I'll talk about specifically, um, the shot list containing the descriptions for about a hundred shots and two overhead diagrams of the scene um, that uh, sort of demonstrate the blocking and camera positions. Um, I also included the script of the scene so um, that that's another form of the scene as well. Um, I enjoy looking at scripts of movies I like because I think it's interesting to see how scenes change from words on paper to photographed and edited motion picture. The script is the form of the movie that all the crew and cast worked from to make the thousands of decisions that get the piece to the screen. In the case of The Horse Whisperer, the piece started as a book by Nicholas Evans, and um, that book had characters and a plot, but relied on language for its emotional impact. And there are a lot of differences between the book and the script, so great transformation happened at that stage as well. Filmmaking is a process, an evolutionary series of collaborative decisions and a collection of shared visions that get filtered through a number of skilled and creative people, as well as a number of constraints like uh, time, budget, weather, stuff like that. So what we are talking about here is transformation, the process of um, going from one form to another form. So let's talk about the scene. Two junior high school-aged girls, Grace, a main character, and her friend Judith, are riding their horses up a hill one winter morning, and Judith's horse has trouble keeping its footing on the slippery uh, hill. The horse slides back, causing both horses to slide down the hill, and once at the bottom of the hill, Judith lies unconscious while Grace tries to get control of Judith's horse. Around the corner comes a truck which is unable to stop and slams into the girls and their horses. Judith dies in the accident and Grace loses a leg and is severely traumatized. I think what's important to fully understand the scene is that these two friends love each other as best friends do and what is at the crux of Grace's torment throughout the film is the guilt she feels at not being able to prevent Judith's death. While the viewer doesn't quite know those details at this point in the film, these facts do inform some of the decisions that went into the shot list, and we're going to talk about that later. Also important to the scene, like any action sequence, is the idea that clarity is required. The audience must be able to follow the action. 
That may be part of the reason the horses and the costumes have distinguishing characteristics. Judith's horse, for example, has red color wrapping on its legs, while um, um, Grace's horse uh, has uh, white um, wrappings. Alfred Hitchcock was big on dressing characters in very different patterns of suits so that during a chase sequence or any other visual kind of sequence, the audience was never confused, not even for a moment. He believed that if the audience was even for a brief moment wondering who was who, then that was a moment they were not fully engaged in the story. Hitchcock knew that if the audience is to be confused, it should be because he makes them confused, not because they can't keep track of what's going on visually. In this uh, sequence, the two girls have markedly different costumes on too, so that you can tell visually um, later on who is who and who is in what situation, and it does uh, really help. Such a simple idea, but it really helps keep track on a subtle level what what's going on. Um, wide shots are also useful as they tell us immediately all about the geography of a scene. This shot, number 51, for example, shows the relationship between the girls and the bend in the road around which the truck will soon come as an unexpected development. Had this road been a straight road, the element of surprise would have been eliminated. Um, well, now I'm going to play the scene uh, once all the way through. Of course, for this podcast, I'll be showing a series of frames, um, still frames, along with music, which is not the ideal way to experience a scene. So you may prefer this time to pause the podcast and go to the blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com, and you can play the real-time video of the scene over there. The blog can be found at imagemethod.blogspot.com again, and um, now I'm going to play the scene for you. I said it. I said it. I said it. I swear to God, it's that. It's that. All right, fine. Let's start again. Ready? Fine, fine, fine. I met him at a party, and he told me how to drive. He said he wanted to do it backwards.
We've only got time today to talk briefly about the approach to covering this scene, but in the next episode, we'll go into some specific shots that are particularly remarkable. The general theme of what we'll be talking about is just how fundamental this filmmaking is. What, um... What never goes unnoticed for me when I watch this scene is just how effective the music and sound design are. They are both so simple and so wonderful, so subtle and so huge. There's a lot of little details in there and I'll probably get into some of that when um, I do the second more detailed part. Um, the shooting makes use of uh, very basic off-speed frame rates. There's certainly a lot of slow motion and there is some stretch printing as well. Stretch printing of course is the technique of printing the same frame of exposed negative multiple times on the print to slow down the action as it was recorded on the negative. In this scene, it looks like they shot at 8 frames per second or so and then stretched to 24 uh, or something like that. The common effect of something like this basic technique is that each frame gets more motion blur than usual. Um, looking at the overhead diagrams, you can see that basically most of the setups are facing one main direction and then the reverse angle for mediums and close-ups. So this is the first part of the this diagram is the this diagram is the first part of the scene when the horses are going up the hill. I didn't place every setup on the on the diagram, but essentially you can see that they made good use of what I call shooting lanes. Um, what I mean by this is um, that they limited the direction and position of camera angles so that what was actually on the screen was only a narrow band of the available set. Um, as you can see in this overhead diagram here. The setups that appear, um, all these camera angles, for example, are basically using the same background, the same bit of forest in the background. Um, the setups that appear to be not using the shooting lane are sort of specials, um, like in the first sequence, in the first part of the sequence on the hill, um, uh, the one shot that doesn't conform to the shooting lane, the one set of th that doesn't conform to the shooting lane um, uh, could have even been done as a second unit shot. It's very wide at the right time of day. You can't see the actors. So um, it might have been a simplified setup just because it was done um, second unit instead of first unit. Possibly. I have no idea, but possibly. Um, it's, that's the nature of that shot. Um, going to the second scene, you can see... Um, the uh, same thing where most of the angles are conforming to a shooting lane um, and uh, multiple angles from different camera positions use the, essentially the same background uh, for their shots. And then if you look at the two angles that do not look in the direction defined by the shooting lane, those angles are um, you know, kind of specials, limited background shots, a close-up of the wheels of the truck, and a um, an angle looking down at Judith on the ground. Um, these are both uh, relatively small shots um, uh, because you don't really see much background. Um, to avoid seeing too much of the real world in your shots is a central part of shooting um, efficiently. 
There may be a couple of times in this sequence that they cross the action axis and um, a line jump like that, a uh, crossing of the screen direction. I think these are totally fine when they do happen. They kind of reflect the confusion of the characters um, that the characters would have been experiencing. Uh, they sort of destabilize the scene for the viewer and there's uh, a distinct nervous sort of doubt in the viewer's mind about what will happen next. I think that really helps the, the scene. Um, I want to go back to this idea of reducing the directions in which the camera points and point out that um, that that the less there is that you have to make camera ready, the more efficient it is for you to get that shoot done. And the closer you can get your lighting and the rigging of your gear. So if your tights are generally, especially in a complex sequence, made up primarily of tighter shots, you can actually work very efficiently if you shoot multiple cameras and you can get your gear even in, multiple, even in a multiple camera situation up right up close because of the longer lenses. So this sort of idea of reducing the amount of set that you are shooting um, is a sort of a standard efficiency um, uh, approach to uh, getting your day done. So um, on the next podcast, we're going to be going into uh, some of these shots more in detail, so I hope you'll tune in for that. Um, also quite remarkable is the simple use of a wide variety of camera angles and camera positions for this um, sequence. So here's a, a few of them, and you can see that the uh, camera is high angled and low angled, it's close, it's far, the focal lengths are varying, a lot of little details are being shot which are relatively easy to shoot as we said before um, smaller shots are easier shots to shoot so um, this um, shooting it so that the editor had the ability to move the audience around from inside the cab to far away from the opposite side of the set uh, to very close up on a detail like a hand on a horn. Um, these are all very simple ways that through quantity and variation um, the coverage really let the sequence um, moves the viewer around the different places and really give the editor the ability to manipulate the moments and the timing. Um, on the next podcast I hope to go into more detail about the um, specifics of this sequence and some of my favorite shots and parts of it. But that's going to have to do it for this podcast. Um, for this episode's totally well-known trade secret, I'll respond to an email I got from someone who wanted some professional advice. This person asked me if I had any thoughts on how freelance film technicians might best weather the current tough economic times and the economic times to come. My be best advice right now is to diversify everything. Try to explore other types of work, different markets. Don't be afraid to slum it a bit. Every job has a potential to meet good people and you also may consider using the slow period to update your reel or develop your portfolio. Um, learning new stuff is always a good time in a slow period, especially in today's production market where everyone wants more for less. It's a good time to be learning motion graphics, web stuff, podcasting, still photography, whatever. Think of some things your clients wish you could do and some things you wish you could do and um, you know have a diversified um, spectrum of clients and a diversified spectrum of skills. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Image Method podcast. 
our blog and all the show notes and all of the images we talk about on the show, including the real-time video, can be found at our blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. That's imagemethod.blogspot.com. Please send us an email if you have any questions. They are completely welcome. We appreciate that. Um, And thank you for all your very nice, encouraging comments so far. I love that as well. So feel free to get in touch. Email us at imagemethod.gmail.com. imagemethod.gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. My name is TW. You're awesome. Appreciate you tuning in, and I'll see you next time. Mm